3: I mean, you see places like Notting Hill Carnival where you get where you see the police. I don't, I don't know about this year, but I know previous years. You've they've always videos of police officers dancing with with, with, with people enjoying the carnival um, and getting involved and stuff. And sometimes it's good dancing, sometimes it's terrifically bad dancing. Um, but it's, they're always, you know, getting having fun and getting involved and stuff. So there's no reason why police officers can't be more involved in their local communities and get to know people better and. Today, we're joined by Tez Ilias. Now, we're going to be talking about chicken boxes.
2: Yep, I did say chicken boxes. Bear with us. All will be explained. We're going to be talking about his time in the civil service. He was 10 years there. And we're also going to be talking about things like national security, the fact that he had to negotiate with the army, also knife crime and race relations with the police. We cover a lot of ground in this, I think it's fair to say. So thanks. Thank you so much, Tez Elias, for joining us. So you're listening to Stop and Search on Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with Elite UK. Here we go. Behind your barricade. Yeah, but how long can I stay
0: Behind your
3: barricade We're, we're
1: your southern street.
2: Thank you so much for joining us on Stop and Search with Tez Ilyas. We recorded this in the late end of the summer in 2019, around about the time an interesting news story broke. I say interesting, but I think the more applicable term would be a face-palming news story because it was so bizarre. It was so divisive. It was just not something you want to read in the press. And we go straight into that on this episode. So without further ado, Let's explain the whole chicken box thing. But there's so much more to this as well. As I said, we go going national security, blah, blah, blah. There's, there's, there's a lot. So this is Stop a Search with Tez Yes, Thank you so much, Tez, for joining us. So I'm joined by Tez. Hi, um, mate. And I can't believe you're here because it was such a punt that I took on you because you tweeted. And that was <laughs> enough for me to go, quick, I need him. Um, there you so go. Let's get straight into it. I can't believe we're even addressing this subject but chicken boxes. That was how I came to you.
3: Yeah, it was the the Home Office uh, policy to put anti-knife crime messages on chicken boxes. I mean, it beggars belief, like it is one of the funniest things I ever saw, because for for people who don't know, I've spent 10 years at the Home Office. Um, And the level of scrutiny that policy goes through, the level of layers that it has to go through, and the amount of feedback that you would have had to get from you know NGOs um, non-governmental organizations and and charity organizations who would have worked in that area and usually you I mean usual practice would be to to engage with them and, and and get their take on it get their feedback on things but the idea that this would have got through all that layer of scrutiny and have got to fruition just absolutely beggars belief i heard and i don't know how true this is jason because you're more plugged into this area than i am but i heard the actual the actual original idea came from morley's is what i've heard is because someone got stabbed outside their chicken shop i think the report or the
2: way that the home Office are reporting it is that there was some tenure support came out that yeah there was activity around knife crime in chicken shops which there wasn't a huge amount of evidence for that because it was just a case of, you know, blindly following leads. Um, so the fact that we just ran into it wholeheartedly, go, right, it's,
3: it's, like you said, the fact that there was no real consultation on this. There can't have been. Because they, they they can't have been because there's no way unless they unless there was and they just ignored it because my time at the Home Office does tell me that very often a minister will ask a question and if they don't get the answer they want from the consultation they will ignore the consultation so um that it's possible that that happened so how long were you at Home Office ten years that's a long time it is I wasn't I I will stress this as well as well for anyone who who's listened to this that worked with me uh, full disclosure I wasn't a very good civil servant but I was there for 10 years. What's the definition of a good civil servant, do you think? I think someone who wants to be there and does their job well. I was. Well, my problem is, is that I'm inherently a lazy person, which is why a career in stand-up comedy suits me to the ground because it means I can get up at midday and and do my thing. Uh, so for me, it wasn't just about being in the civil service, but any job that means I have to be in the office by nine is going to be difficult. So would you say that from like from your
2: experience and you just alluded to it that quite often a question is posed and then the
3: evidence supports that as opposed to letting the evidence lead the way on policy oh, 100% and this is not across all areas and this is not um it's something that I've concluded this is not a conclusive conclusion but what I saw that happened a lot uh where the the the, the minister will have a strong yeah, you know, I can't say enough about Labour because I wasn't there long enough under Labour to know what their practices were, but definitely under the Tories, um, what they they often they often came to problems with an ideological viewpoint, uh, and so they needed the answers to fit the question rather than, as you said, letting the evidence dictate policy. So going back to what we
2: originally kicked off on, just in case, because you've got international listeners on this. So can you briefly
3: explain what happened with the chicken boxes? Okay, so here in the UK, um, the Home Office, a Department for Home Affairs, whatever you want to call it, they are, they are the government um, a department responsible for immigration, crime and... Counter-terrorism. That is their big three things that they are responsible for. So they're, the, they're the, one of the biggest departments. I think they're the department, maybe after Department for Work and Pensions, that employs the most people in the UK as well. Um, so they're a massive, huge department. Um, and as part of a crime, a fighting crime strategy, in their infinite wisdoms, someone in the Home Office has proposed putting anti-knife crime messages in chicken boxes because presumably that will have a positive effect on knife crime numbers because presumably people who commit knife crimes also eat chicken <laughs> apparently so i don't know so where the evidence I am, is i am i mean sure people who eat not na- who 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 are involved in knife crime will eat chicken there will be a crossover between those two people but how effective how effective this um, strategy is and policy is, um, I have no idea. And also, it's it's impossible to measure because if let's 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 give the let's give the policy the benefit of the doubt, right? And let's say some young lad who's not who's on the periphery of a gang, so he's not really a gang member, but say he's he he carries a knife purely for self defense because he hears that other boys in his area carry a knife, so he's not really a gang guy. Um, and say he's in a, his local Morley's or whatever the knockoff KFC chicken shop they're in, um, in whatever part of the country this policy is uh, being enacted in. And he gets his two-piece and chips and he opens his chicken box and there's a story in there. I, I don't even know what the stories are, but it's, you know, it's anti-knife crime messages and he sees it. And that does have an effect on him, say. And he thinks twice about carrying a knife and eventually over time, triggered by that message, he decides to stop carrying a knife. How do you even measure that? Mm.
2: That's the thing. is It's it impossible to measure. With any policy, it should be evidence-led and yet there is no way
3: of put, put, like, getting any kind of... What you that. can measure is the amount of ridicule that the Home Office has had over this. Do you think that was justified? The ridicule? 100%. 100%. Because it's just ridiculous. Because it shows... Unless you can show us the consultation... Then shows you're working out. If this is your answer, show us you're working out. Show us the evidence that has led to suggest that this is going to be an effective policy. Um, show us the consultation that you've had with people who work with young people on the ground who are affected by this issue. Show us all of that. And then if if and if and all of that working out suggests that this is a really good, positive uh, policy that is going to work, then we can all be like, bloody hell, we were wrong. But they don't have it. They can't show it to us because they don't have
2: it. The social media feedback that we got, and especially with supporting articles as well, like the Metro did a piece where they profiled a lot of people and their opinions. There was certainly a suggestion that this was certainly a, a contentious issue in regards to race. Do you yeah. think? Do you think that's?
3: I think that's part. Well? I think there's got to be a part of it because there's a whole. Um, there is a stereotype that uh, black people love chicken. That is a stereotype that exists, um, and. And, and there is also the stereotype that black people are... Uh, young black people are proportionally uh, affected by knife crime, both perpetrating and being the victim of. Um, and so if you cross those two things together, then it, there's definitely a racial element to this. Um, I think it'd be... Uh, and whether it was deliberate or, or coincidence, I, I can't I can't say. Because, um, I, I, you know, you always want to give people the benefit of the doubt. But it's definitely a blind spot within the Home Office because... I feel like if there was anyone, any person of colour, particularly a black person in any sort of position of authority in that decision-making chain, they'd have looked at that and gone, no, no, maybe this is not a good idea.
2: That And that seemed to be a lot of the problem as well, didn't it? The fact that there just didn't seem to be any consultation. Anybody that I knew that was in an NGO or even politicians
3: of you know ethnic backgrounds,
2: no one seemed to be consulted.
3: Yeah, someone had a smart idea. Um, but sometimes it's like you know when you're workshopping and you go there's no bad ideas and then someone's just gone. This is like it's three hours in, and someone's gone. Just, what about? What about uh, I I don't know. What about like you, you put like an anti-crime message on like some food or something, and someone's gone chicken boxes, because young people love chicken and 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 they're late at night eating chicken and then and then they just that's just snowballed and the person who probably originally said it has gone. I wish I kept my mouth shut because this has now snowballed. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's 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 absolutely ridiculous, especially because the amount of publicity this has had. If you are a young person reading this, you know where it's come from. It's come from the government, and therefore, it's probably lost any credibility it would have had anyway, because it's the man telling you to uh, telling you the stop. Story. I don't know what's in there, but what I also know is that most people. Like, I mean, obviously there's, there's two types of people who might carry knives. There's there's people who are involved in gangs. And I would say that you are not going to reach them through this sort of messaging. If anything, it probably egg them on. Because they'd be like, oh yeah, my, me carrying a knife has an effect that I love because I love scaring people. Like that is going to be, if anything, counterproductive. And then you've got the other people who might carry a knife for self-defense or because they're scared and there'll be a proportion of people that carry a knife for that reason as well. And I'm not saying that you can't reach those people with this type of messaging. I'm saying it's impossible to prove. And that's what you've always been good at with
2: with your show, but also your stand-up, is you address racism and the root causes and to the point where some of the reviews that you've had for some of your shows have been like you go for bigotry. Mm. Uh, is that important to you that we do need to address this head on as opposed to skirting it?
3: Completely, because there are issues. And I, th- I think I think things that affect people should be spoken about. Like, I only talk about things that affect me directly. Um, you know, when it comes to bigotry, there's obviously a big umbrella uh, that comes under that, uh, you know, race. Um, b- bigotry based on people's religion or sexuality, um, gender, all that sort of stuff. And all of those things are important, but I address the things that I... That are most important to me, mainly because a they affect me more directly, but also b because I can speak of on on them with some authority. Um, not to say that my my areas of sensitivity are the most important areas, but they're the most important areas to me, and they're the areas that I can most easily speak on because I am directly affected by them. Um, so I think it's very important. I think I think anyone who who has any sort of issue in their life which needs to be talked about should should be feel free to talk about it. Whether anyone will listen is a different. Is, is, is neither here nor there but I think people should definitely be encouraged to talk about issues that they care about have you, have, you, have you been personally affected by racism and bigotry? Well yeah of course I mean more Islamophobia I would say than direct racism over recent history um, but yeah definitely a bit of you know I grew up in a, a working class town in Blackburn there was a there was, you know in, the, in the, uh, born in the 80s but grew up largely my experiences were largely based in growing up in the 90s and uh, and yeah, there was a there was a bit of I can you know not loads, but yeah, there was definitely elements of racism within the town. Um, and then uh, probably not so much after 9/11 actually. Probably more, some more after 7/7. Uh, things rapidly changed, and it was more about um, being Muslim than it was about being Asian. Although that was still the undercurrent. And you you've spoken
2: publicly, I think it was on the right stuff about because you worked in the Olympics. I did. Um, can you give me a quick background on what you did there?
3: So I was on the um, Olympic security directorate. So that was, um, so the Olympic was a mammoth, mammoth task as we uh, all remember. Um, and there the government was involved in helping to organize it. And the home office were given the responsibility of making sure the Olympics were safe and secure um, for everyone, um, for London, for the members of the public who are going to watch uh, for athletes and, um, for people working there, um, uh, so that was our responsibility, and I worked in an area. So the home office has these four Ps that kind of come under as part of their counterterrorism strategy, um, which is prepare. So um, if a terrorist terrorist attack was to go down, um, are you prepared for it? So you're making sure that there's preparation. <clears throat> if, if something was to go wrong, you're prepared to for the consequences to deal with the consequences effectively. Uh, Protect, which is in the event of an attack, you're well protected. So that's both physically um, and otherwise. Um, Pursue. So that's, I mean, that's probably the most obvious one. You're pursuing bad people. Uh, And prevent, which is the most contentious one, which is about uh, trying to prevent uh, terrorism from happening in the first place. Um, So that overlay of, that strategy was overlaid onto the Olympic security director. And I worked in the area of protect which was physically protecting the Olympic venues from terrorist attack. So my, the one area that I worked in most were, well, the two areas that I worked in most was one, do you, you know, when you're in Westminster and you see those, those big imposing physical bollards, not very high, yeah. but you can't drive a car through them. So they are, uh, so that was the area I worked in, making sure those were around all the key Olympic venues to make sure that no one could ram a, a van, a lorry load of explosives or whatever, into the venues. Um, so if there were, they'd explode outside. They wouldn't penetrate the barrier. Um, so that was an area I worked in, making sure those were procured and tested properly and fitted in the venues. So doing, so doing a risk assessment of certain venues, of key venues, and making sure that they were well protected. So the Olympic Park was fine because the Olympic Park that was all built in uh, because it was a brand new venture. That was all the security aspects were built into it. But there were other venues that were used like the Excel, for example, which was, which is a building of its own. Like it's, it's um, not the Excel, the, um, what is the, what is the building by, it's near Hammersmith, Earl's Court. I'm rubbish because I'm from Kent. So I, I'm I st- still use my phone to navigate. Why I- were the big, they had, did like badminton and stuff in there. So making sure that, and something like that was safe because if you're if you are a bad person wanted to target the Olympics, the Olympic Park is probably the hardest place for you to attack. So you think, okay, what else is there? There's football stadiums. There's where the badminton is happening. There's the or two. There's all these. There's, there's where the white water rafting is. All those places. So all the places that were in the Olympic Park, which were slightly more vulnerable to attack. Just looking at them and making sure that they were well physically protected. Um, and then the other thing was making sure that there was enough secure, physical security guards to um, make sure that the Olympics could happen safely. So do you remember the, the big kerfuffle around G4S yes, during yeah, the Olympics? Yeah. So G4S, the private security contractor that were, protect, that, were, that were given the contract to provide security guards um, for the Olympics. So they were doing several things, guarding venues, but also making sure that bags were checked when people are, are on the way in. So it's a very important job. And they said that they would recruit 10,000 people for for the start of the Olympics. That figure got slightly revised. And I think a year out we needed, it, it came, the figure got rounded up slightly to more like 15 to 18,000. Once once we knew more of what we needed, once we got close to the Olympics and we had a better idea of what was needed, that figure got increased. And G4S was still adamant that they could meet that target. And then, and then about six months beforehand, they were like, no, we're not gonna, we can meet the 10,000, but this extra, we're not going to be able to meet that. we I mean, like, fair like, slightly, you're, like, annoyed, but you're, like, going, fair enough, okay, this was kind of imposed on you a little bit, uh, but as long as you're going to meet that original 10,000, that was the original contract, fine, okay, let's see what we can do about this additional five to 8,000 that we need. So we, we, we worked up various proposals, including getting civil service staff trained up, volunteers trained up, police officers, army And then it became obvious to everyone that the only people that could probably do this is the army. So I had the very first meeting with the army on my own to ask them to provide security guards, well, to provide their soldiers to act as security guards for the Olympics. Um, And it was a very short meeting at the end of which they said, (laughs) no chance, there is no chance we will do that. And then I was like, okay, well, I was, I'm feeling a bit shit by myself going oh I was a sure and meeting got to go back and tell my bosses now and this is going to go over my head i show not sure something we got sorted out but then they rang me back within 20 minutes and said come back in let's have a chat and that was basically their neg- I learned then quickly that that was their negotiating tactic they said no and then go I then think, shortly, <laughs> and then, then shortly after they're like let's have a conversation um maybe they expected me to push back for harder and maybe that's what they were expecting but I was just like how do you negotiate with the army? Exactly. Anyway? <laughs> exactly. I'd never been in these rooms before. I mean, I learned quickly over time, you're going, if you press hard enough, they kind of they, they they kind of give in. Not in a sort of like soft way, but just the, that's just how they like negotiating. But um but but because I'd never really been in that situation before. I was like, okay, the army guy said no, I guess that's a no. And they were like, No, we didn't mean didn't mean it. Just come back in, um, and then and then a month out from the Olympics, uh, the G4S told us that they weren't going to be able to meet the ten thousand either, and they were going to be close to five six thousand. Um, so we just asked the army to do more, and because the army are great, they said yes. That's that's a hell of a job that you took on. Yeah, it was in, I mean, don't get me wrong, like, I wasn't doing this stuff by myself. Like, there were a couple of things, a couple of meetings that I was, that was kind of, like, that first meeting with the army, I did that. Um, but a lot, of, you know, the, the team around, around, I mean, it was my team, the people above me and stuff, like, they were incredible. Like, they were, like, the thing about, say, about the civil service, especially in policy areas, it is surrounded by very, very bright people. Very, very intelligent, hardworking people. And the Olympics, the area that I worked in, the Olympics was full of those types of people. Very hardworking, very diligent. Um, and just, they just really, really cared. I'll get back to the point I was making with the Olympics
2: in a minute, but you're right that when you do get someone in Parliament that's an aide or a civil service, there are ones that absolutely earn their money because they just don't switch off. Like There's yeah. people that I'm in contact with right now. If I if I send them a message, they're going to be there despite the fact they're on holiday because they just cannot switch off, especially at the moment with everything that's going on. But people like that don't quite get the credit because we're we're always quite easy to knock, aren't we?
3: Yeah, I mean, and I think I think every everything always um, stops the the buck stops at the minister, usually, doesn't it? Mm. Uh, and sometimes that's not fair because you know there'll be some human error made by some civil servant somewhere, and then the repercussions of that are felt maybe a few weeks later, and then the minister has to resign for some strange, which I've never understood really, because the minister is not in charge of day to day working. But um, but yeah, the buck stops at the minister, really. So the point I was making with the
2: Olympics is that you, when I heard you speak about it, you, you gave across how it was a moment of seemingly like unity. You know, there was there was a kind of atmosphere in, in the country.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah. I did say that. Yeah. I, I feel like our country, I feel like our entire country peaked at the Olympics. Like that was the peak pinnacle the greatest that this country has ever been was the Olympics because uh, we put on this great party for the entire world uh, and is, you know, universally said to be one of the best Olympic games of all time, whether it's the best, neither here nor there, but it's one of the best Olympic games ever put on. Crime went down in London. Um, people were, people just had a really, that, that summer, just the summer was incredible for everyone, whether, whether people went to the Olympics or didn't go to the Olympics, it just felt like a carnival atmosphere across the whole country. And, and it was a real moment of, even the athletes that represented us from more to Jessica Ennis um, and everyone and everyone else. Um, like it was just a real, like the, the, the diversity in the athletes that did well for us that summer was incredible. And so I just felt like, it like a moment where you were like, wow, the country's going to change now. Well, not change, but the country's going to get better now. But actually it peaked, like it peaked at that moment. And then for some reason, a lot of people just went, nah, we don't like that. So
2: what do you think now? Do you think we have gone down the slope? And oh, yeah, yeah, up?
3: yeah. Like, like that was the peak. We've been slowly building up to that. And ever since then, we've just gone off the cliff edge. And um, racism is back. Bigotry in general is back. We're just a lot rooted to each other. Like, any goodwill that was built up during the Olympics between people and communities and um, across the British Isles has just evaporated, I think.
2: Do you think we can get it back? Do you think we can get to that position that we had in the Olympics of unity
3: or seemingly unity? I don't think it's impossible. I think what makes it really difficult is the internet and social media. And I think we've just retreated into tribal culture online. So so tribes aren't what they use. You know, back in the day, your tribe is literally the village that you're born in. That's your tribe. But now tribe people find their tribes online. And because people are in their own little bubble... Um, And they're constantly reinforcing what they believe in through their own memes and humour and whatever they read. They're reinforcing what they believe in. I think think getting to that point again will be very, very difficult. Because how do you extract people from that?
2: It's very hard. It must be weird from your position, having come from the background which you described, to now working in the media and satire and comedy. Do the two things lend each other? Do they go hand in hand? Can you draw inspiration off of your past? Which two things? So, satire and comedy, Mm. and your background in the civil service and what you've learned within politics. Can you draw upon your background within that? Um,
3: Not directly. I think it helps having, I think it helped me having that background, those 10 years, in that I actually understand the mechanics of government. And the mechanics of policy making and the mechanics of decision making, which I think if I hadn't had that experience, it's a bit hard to penetrate exactly how government works. But because I was literally in it, I understand fundamentally how that stuff works now. And I also understand the problems with it, but I also more understand how it should work, ideally on paper, how things are supposed to work, in practice how it does work. and so, when I talk about if there are things, issues I want to talk about in my comedy that I either want to make a joke about or satirize, for example, then um, I, I, I'm coming at that from a position of knowledge rather than just guessing.
2: The, the topics that you do take head on um, are they just organic and inherent to your life, or are those things that you pick out and go, "All right, that's a prominent issue I need to address."
3: You know, I'd be of both. There are like. I, I mean, I probably come across very like a very serious person in this interview, but I'm very, very silly. There are things that I, you know, I, I love watching videos of goats on YouTube because <laughs> they're, they're the funniest animal we have. But um, then I also like massively satirical, uh, satirical comedy that takes on massive issues um, and everything in between. Um, so I'm not, I'm not any one thing, but I do love comedy that says something it is my favorite type of comedy like i love all types of stand-ups i love everyone from peter k and michael mcintyre to stuart lee and chris rock and dave chappelle um and lots of people in between but the stuff that i like the most is the dave chappelle stuff the, the 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 south park stuff the you know that sort of the thick of it that sort of thing that's my that's what i love the most but i also really enjoy the other stuff um so I, yeah i really like um yeah, I think I think I think comedy can do a lot in holding up a mirror to society and say have a look at
2: yourselves, guys. That was what I was gonna ask actually. How important is comedy in making
3: serious points? Massively important. I think it can be really, really important. I don't think when people but people but when people say can comedy change things, that I'm more cynical of. But I think it can make people aware of things and it can make and it can hold up a mirror to society where people can look at themselves and say, Oh, Okay, that's an interesting way of looking at this thing that I hadn't thought about, that I've just been living through. Um, I think, And I think it can be really, 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 really good at doing that. But also, like maybe, you know, in some places it can... I mean, is it, is it Ukraine where a comedian has become the prime minister? Um, I think the Five Star Movement in Italy was started by a comedian, or he's definitely one of the founders of, of the movement. So that's not to say that... Comed- I mean, comedians can be very, very effective activists. Um. So, so, so they can, but I think I think their art, but I think they then have to move away just from creating art. I think then they have to evolve into something else. But the art that they create can definitely start a conversation.
2: There's a couple of points there. A, I completely agree with you on goats. They're my favourite animal. It's so funny. They are, they're amazing. I just love them. It's so funny. Um, and B, I think you're right in the sense that comedians can be brilliant activists. And this is why I'm, we're really grateful when you get someone like you that comes on this show, because... You bring an audience with you. You can put things in terms that we might not be able to. Do you think it is important that comedians step
3: up and have their say when it's necessary? Um, But I I think all if it's authentic. I I think if you're a comedian who does observational comedy about the things that you observe in life, you know, everyday foibles and stuff, um, and that's what you're good at, Brilliant. We don't need every single person who does comedy to step up about a social issue because if they're not comfortable doing it or if it doesn't affect them directly or if so, sometimes they don't care and that's fine. It's fine not to care as well. Although politics, I feel like politics does affect everyone. But, you know, there are people, there'll, there'll be comics who are right-wing Tories and the things that I care about, they don't care about. And that, and that's perfectly fine to hold alternative viewpoints. Um, but I think for those artists, and this is wider than just comedy, who do care slash are affected by issues, um, I think they should. Yeah, I so, think they should. So we just
2: mentioned that there's quite a few people from politics in, or comedy and in, have gone into world politics. Do you reckon you could ever go that way? Would no, it would ever appeal?
3: No. I, you know what? People have asked me this before. I don't think it does because I think once you enter into the political system, you're part of a system and then you're slightly handcuffed. Like, I can't talk this freely. I wouldn't be able to, like, say, it was by some miracle I stood somewhere and I became a member of parliament. I couldn't talk this freely in the chamber, in, in, the, in the House of Commons or in interviews and stuff. A, after to par- a party line, um, there might be policies that my party come up with that I don't agree with. There's language that you have to temper, which I'd find difficult, I think. Um... Also, those people look very... I think I think people don't realise how hard politicians work, whether you like them or not. They do. It's, it's not an easy job. They work extremely hard. And, you know, sometimes the criticism that we give them is wholly justified. And other times, I don't think it is. It's a very difficult job. And, and what, we, what we never see is the amount of work that MPs do in their constituencies, um, helping constituents out with local problems and stuff or bringing local issues to the national forefront and stuff. And a lot of backbench MPs, that's, that's what they do. Um, and they sit on select like committees on in things that they care about and stuff. So MPs work extremely, extremely hard and I don't know if I'm about that life.
2: And I think where y- you can speak probably as well as what I can, I don't come from London, you don't come from London, but you've lived here for quite a while, but you come from the North. Do you, has there, in your view, been a North and South divide?
3: Yes. I think there's a lot of industry based in London that doesn't need to be here. I mean, some of it's changing. You have got a lot of media moving up to Salford, for example. Channel Four opening up a new base in, I think it's Bristol, Leeds, and Glasgow. Um, so some of it is changing, but you know, there's, there's this massive infrastructure issues that need to be addressed up north. It's just, it's just hard to get around by public transport. Um, it's just not very well linked up, and I think, and now that public transport is so expensive to deliver. Um, It's a shame that this stuff wasn't sorted out back when it was cheaper to do things. Um, But yeah, there there, there, there needs to be a massive investment in infrastructure in the north, particularly transport links. Because once you get transport links, that changes everything. Because then companies and industries are not worried about being up north. Because if they go, the talent will come. And the talent want to be in places that are well-connected. And if you're in a well-connected place, then other things will increase like arts um and, and and things to do and all, all you know the things that london is great for the reason why london is great to live in once once you sort out a few issues up north you, you'll get all that stuff
0: ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer
2: Simple things as well, like the conversations that take place in the Westminster bubble don't seem to travel down to Kent alone, I'd imagine, further up north. Probably. Do you think that... Like like what? um, Prime example, what we're dealing with in here, like racial justice, social justice, drug policy. uh, There's there's a big media bubble around it now. Obviously, we're talking about knife crime a lot. But down in my way, in leafy suburb Kent, People still don't care, you know. They think they believe that stop and searches are the way to go and that yeah, yeah, and yeah. that we should ramp those up.
3: I think I think I think part of the issue is when when you when you Okay, so when you are not directly affected by an issue, I think it's very, very easy to just read things at face value. Piers Morgan is a prime example of this. So out of like like a lot of people hate Piers Morgan. I don't hate Piers Morgan. I, th- I think I think I think he's an idiot. But sometimes he can be a very useful idiot if he's on your side like for example on gun crime in the US. But he he is an idiot in that he takes everything at face value because he's not really directly affected by anything. So when it comes to issues of feminism he just takes things at face value. He's so he'll say something like well, if, if, you care about women, if you care about women, then why are you dressing off naked? And it's like, no, feminism is about choice, but he doesn't understand the nuance. So when it, when it comes to knife crime, he's like, yeah, we put more police on the streets and they stop people, then they'll find knives. And you're going, yeah, but that's also massively counterproductive and it affects a whole community and it affects a whole it's the psychology of a whole group of young people who have nothing to do with anything, who have nothing to do with the issue. And it affects their psychology growing up. Um... And if anything, you, you you sometimes you end up pushing people who are on the periphery into crime because um, they don't like being treated the way um, they do by by authority. But he doesn't understand anything about it because he's not affected by it. And I think that's for more. And, and, there, and there are things that, you know, in, in a lot of instances, I would be very nuanced on things, but there are things that I'm not directly affected by that I might just take a face value from the media. Um, and most people in leafy suburbs of Kent or around the country who are not affected by things just take things at face value. Same with immigration, but it's also in the way that the media deals with things because need, the media tends not to deal in nuance, or if it does, it's in the page seven of the broadsheets, not on the front pages of tabloids. I think you hit upon a key area there as
2: well, is that yeah, if you're not affected, you know, um, I'm white. I don't want to say it, but I'm essentially middle class. Um, Even though if you saw where I come from, I wouldn't (laughs) profess to be that at all. Um, So technically, you know, I can walk around the streets of London and not be under suspicion. But if you're of a different ethnicity to me, you're not around that, well, I can say luxury. That's not even the right word. So people like Piers Morgan that aren't affected, they have got the luxury of being able to say, ramp up, stop and
3: searches. But as you makes And it makes sense to them. At face value, it makes sense. If you don't investigate the issue or if you don't, think about it for more than four seconds, which is generally how Piers Morgan tends to deal with things. um, It makes sense. Like if you go, well, if you put more police stopping people, eventually they will uncover more knives statistically. That's just what will happen. So you kind of go, well, what's the problem then? It's because they don't deal deal with Mm nuance and because it doesn't affect them. I think most of the country are not racist in, in, in in the most basic level of racism in that if they heard someone say the P word or the N word, they would say, don't do that that's racist. Most people would do that, but then most people are also unaware of structural racism. Uh, And so uh, you you strip a couple of layers of the obvious types of racism out and suddenly they stop engaging and they're like, well, no, racism is when you call someone the N-word. This isn't, this other thing isn't racism. And you're like, well, no, structural racism. The reason why people with Muslim names um, are are far less likely to be given job interviews like, you know, pe- there's been experiments done by people who put in identical CVs, one with a Christian name, one with a Muslim name, uh, and and the Muslim, um, the same CV under a Muslim name gets barely any interviews, and and, and the same CV with the Christian name gets all the interviews. Um, so these studies have been done, but they're a bit more difficult to engage with, I think, than just bad words are wrong. Yeah,
2: and, and also the way that our security systems are angled as well because we spoke to Mr Kumar a little while ago and he said that he's always being pulled out of airport lines because of his the colour of his skin. Um, we've had uh, other people that have been stopped and searched just so so many times. And again, these these are things that I don't have to deal with because of the colour of my skin. Uh, have you ever had to deal with any of these issues?
3: Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been I've been stopped and searched a couple of times. Oh, you actually have. Yeah. Um... I mean, one. Of, I mean, when the first time it happened, it was very, very silly because the police were saying someone fits your description and they're carrying a knife, or they've hurt someone. This was in Blackburn, and um, and then I found out the person they were looking for because you know Blackburn's not a big place, and they were just they were just they look just didn't look anything like me. Uh, I found that quite amusing. Um, and then yeah, airports are just part of the course, isn't it? I mean, my first name is Mohammed on my passport.
2: So, do you just you know take it as red now that you're going to be under the cloak of suspicion? Yeah, I'm just
3: trying to have fun with it. because oh, as a comedian, you're kind of like, okay, where is the where is the routine that I can pull from this? Yeah. and it's quite a perverse way of thinking. I would probably wouldn't you know it's different if you if you haven't got art to create. Um, does, does that give you a handy outlet? Massively. Yeah. I mean, it's it's um, the um, <laughs> the oppression of, I mean, art comes, the best art comes from oppression. So the oppression of Muslims over the last, I mean, oppression might be not be the right word, but the suspicion of Muslims over the last 10, 15 years has allowed me a great deal of material, which is perverse, but it's true. So In so the wait, same way that war creates jobs. Yeah. And is- industry.
2: When you created your show, um, was it conscious of any of the material that was going to be taken on? You know, it's satirical, it's comedy. Was there was there elements that you're going, right, we're definitely going to draw upon that? Or was it all reactive? Did you just base it on what
3: was going on in the news at the time? Um, I kind of just look at... I kind of look at a theme at the beginning. Before I write a show, I'm, I kind of have a, a question that I might want to answer and that might change but you know like an exam question like okay what like a thesis question like going what is this or this is what i want to say in this and then i'll and then i'll you know a bit like what you've got there this mind map thing you've got at the back there then you write a load of things that might be affected by this question you just draw it out and then you start going okay start writing material on this start writing material on that start writing, and then and then eventually you, you write minutes and minutes of material and then you should just try and piece it and then you you Take out the stuff that's not working, and you keep the stuff that is working, and you keep improving that, and eventually you can just stitch it together into a narrative. It's generally how I, right. probably not the most scientific way of doing it, but was it? Was it? I know I'm getting a script here, but was it good fun working on the TV program because it came across really well? So, yeah, no, the Tesla Clock Show has been brilliant. It's been an amazing experience, and it's just it was nice that like the channel Channel Four let me make the thing that I wanted to make because I've had so many stories about how they will shape it into something that they are more comfortable with and then it sometimes isn't the thing that you want to make. And there was a small element of that, of course, because the channel, you know, they're, they're, they're the ones who know how to write, how to make a TV show and stuff. But um, I was very, very, very happy that they let me make the thing that I wanted to make, Most, mostly. It was about 90% the thing that I wanted to make, which is very high in in, in, in this industry. And it was very well received. I was really, really pleased. Was, there was no, that was a north south thing in that I was, I was very very conscious that I wanted to make a northern show uh, filmed in the north with other northern acts because um, quite often they, this this sort of this sort of satire or talking about the news is often entrusted to similar kinds of voices you know southern voices Oxbridge voices and those people are brilliant and and they have a lot of of great things to say but they're not the only people with an opinion um, so I wanted to create a show where other types of voices could talk about these same issues, but from our perspective, and people
2: seem to go with that, which is good. I'm gonna to have to start to wrap up now. Because I can't believe that um, I've got so much I could kind of ask you about, but um, just to really put you on the spot now. Mm. So we, we've spoken about knife crime, we've spoken about uh, diversity and race. How would you go about, I'm gonna use the words, solving in quotation marks, but what's your position on knife crime and street violence? Are we getting a narrative right? How do you think we can best tackle it? Just to really put you're the, you're the prime minister.
3: Got, there yeah, you go. You've oh been God. elected. You might have to, you might have to edit out this pause while I have a, while I have a little think. Yeah, definitely. But it looks like I just came up with from the top <laughs> of my head. But um, yeah, you've already written out your, your whole manifesto. <sighs> God, that's a that's a hard one, isn't it? I, I you think, I think there needs to spot. be I think there needs to be massive amounts of investment into local communities. Um, it creating um community centers, um, ramping up social services because knife crime doesn't just start with a kid one day waking up on a night, like he's been he's been on a journey. So if there are interventions you can make on that journey that would stop him getting to the point that he would pick up a knife when he's 14 or whatever, then all of those steps need to be put into place. There needs to be um, greater support for single parent families. There needs to be um, I think the benefit system needs to be looked at again as well so that parents can spend more time at home so they're not working two, three jobs, so they can spend more time at home with their kids. Because I think, uh, and correct, please correct me if I'm wrong, but 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 kids from more stable families are less likely, not impossible, not zero, but less likely to be drawn in to do these sorts of issues. Um so I think that's a that that that's a massive thing that could be improved. Um, i think police numbers do help i would i, I would i'm not saying i'm not saying stop and search but i'm saying visible community policing in the way that we used to have when we were growing up where where police officers would get to know the local community and they cared about the local community i think those sorts of things would be massively helpful um so when kids have got a problem they can they, they, they can see an officer that they know that they can have a chat with um and that's an officer that can understand what they're going through and is not just going to come down with them with a ton of bricks um, and th- and this is obviously pre pre-crime stuff um, but you know there's all sorts of issues in the community that goes on in the community that doesn't need to be dealt with in a, in a heavy-handed way so if you can start doing a lot of that I think I think it would massively help I I don't, I don't think I think it's a thing um ultimately you know there's a, there's an element of knife crime that is also linked to gangs which is a separate thing um, but there's also an of knife crime where people, where kids just don't feel safe um, or they egged on to carry a knife to make them look hard or whatever. And I think it's those kids, I think those kids should be the priority to tackle. Um, I think those probably kids probably be slightly easier to reach as well. Um, and then kids who join gangs um, and slash hardened criminals who become hardened criminals, not that they are when they first joined. Um, I think it's probably slightly harder to reach, but more needs to be done to prevent them from, Wanting to join a gang in the first place.
2: Say, I'd definitely vote for you. That's <laughs> <Thank> perfect. You. <laughs> that is, it, you, you summed it up. It's it's the holistic picture. It, it, you can't just stop knife crime by stopping every person that's under suspicion, and it's it looks like someone who's under suspicion. Exactly. You know,
3: Yes, yeah. it's ridiculous.
2: Because you do, you get arbitrary stereotypes then, and it's and as we see, that breaks down uh, relationships even further. And I think you make the perfect point that it is about. Communities, as you said, the way that policing has evolved, it's become quite militarized. I don't want to mm. use that word, but it, it has. You know, we followed America's example in a lot of different ways. And if we can get back to community policing, especially as you said, you know, in, in every areas up north, it's going to help, surely.
3: Yeah. I mean, you see places like Notting Hill Carnival where you get, where you see the police, I don't don't know about this year, but I know previous years you've, they've always videos of police officers dancing with, with, with with people enjoying the carnival um, and getting involved and stuff. And sometimes it's good dancing. Sometimes it's (laughs) (laughs) typically bad dancing. um, But they're always, you know, getting, having fun and getting involved and stuff. So there's no reason why police officers can't be more involved in their local communities and get to know people better and, um, and yeah, I, th- I think I think I think I think that would help. Not that I mean, I think it's impossible to eradicate crime. You know, we're not living in a just in some sort of dystopian society where we've got. Well, actually, you know, who knows what AI, how AI will develop and when it when it rules us in the future. But you know, as as things stand, I think it's impossible to 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 put crime at zero. Um, but I think these things. Oh, the other thing I would do is I would decriminalize drugs. Is the other thing that I would do. I would legalize marijuana. Uh, and I would decriminalize possession of drugs, not selling possession. I would decriminalize possession of drugs. Um, under a certain amount. Um, so just you know, people just want to use drugs and they get caught. Like I would decriminalize that completely. Um, I would legalize marijuana. Um, and I think that yeah, that would also go somewhere to helping. I think.
2: See, I I kind of almost purposely didn't go down that route because I I wasn't sure your position on it, yeah. um, but. Yeah, that's. I completely agree with you. That's what we advocate for. Is that you know, let's treat drugs as a health problem when it's needed and, and not a criminal justice issue. Um, I can't believe you come out with that. That's the perfect thing. I, well, not to end on because I now want to kind of probe more. But I know, <laughs> I know that you've got uh, time restrictions. But yeah,
3: no, I do, I do, I do, I do, believe that. I think, I think, I think uh, people who supply drugs should still be pursued, and uh, class A drugs and stuff should still be pursued and stuff. But um, I think, yeah, people who use drugs should be dealt with differently Um, and yeah marijuana let's just let's just not make like just tax it make some money out of it and then put that back into policing and and local communities
2: perfect I think that's a very good place to end it on so thank you so much Tez for joining us
3: thank you very much for having me it was really really interesting and I hope you're oh if you're listening to this uh, and you like my stuff it's not always as serious but yeah follow me on all the usual things Twitter, Facebook, Instagram Tez Elias and www.tezilias.com, sign up to my newsletter, let you know when I'm doing stuff. Any other things you need to get in? or? Um, No, watch the Tez O'Clock show on all four. Uh, watch Man Like More Bean I Player. and look out for me at gigs and I'll be on tour next year. Brilliant. Well, hopefully I'll get to see you, you Kent? Not my favourite place to go <laughs> gig in, I'll be honest. But What's wrong with Kent? We shouldn't always preach to the converted. Yeah, so that's I true. That is really go true. to... Uh, Canterbury Canterbury, there you go, it's a perfect one for
2: me yeah, That's where I'll get down to Or Brighton, it's not far, probably Is it far? It's, it's for, on the train, it's for Anything. It's like, because I have to come into London and back out Oh really? Like, okay, yeah, I'll go to, just, Canter- just I go do to Canterbury, Canterbury. I'll go to yeah. Canterbury then Yeah, fine Brilliant, thank you so much, Tez Great, thank you I think Tez was brilliant on that, I really do And I, I always say that comedians are very good on this show Because they manage to get across points that in a In a really good, and often funny way when quite often there's not humour to be found there, but they they manage. Thank you so much, Tess, for that. And if you do get any tips or leads, if you see anything on social media, if you see someone on telly that's talking about knife crime, social justice issues, race, drugs, give us a tip. because it all helps? We'll we'll take a punt. We'll see if they're available. And that's something that Noel, one of our one of our biggest followers, has done. Noel has let us know on quite a few different people. So thank you so much, Noel, for. For being there and doing what you do for us. Thank you to everybody that listens to this, because we have got some brilliant people that do do get involved and give us nudges and that it really does help. And one I want to thank you is, of course, I have to thank the producing team of this, which is Tristan, Nikki, John, they do so much for this show. Thank you to all of the Distraction Pieces Network, including Scrooge's Pip, our boss, our leader. Make sure you listen to all the shows on Distraction Pieces Network, because they've up their game. They're doing so much at the moment. Make sure you listen to Say Why To Drugs and buy the book. The book is out soon. Yes, Say Why To Drugs. Get it. Please do. Susie Gage has done amazing on that. I read it. It is fantastic. While we're on the thank yous as well, we've got to make sure that we thank everybody at cast for making sure we can get out there, making sure that we can, yeah, project our voice like we do. And also thank you to My Name Is Ad for the artwork. Make sure you check him out as well because he's done so much for us. On our social media you can find us at ukleap.org on Facebook and our website and ukleap on Instagram and Twitter and of course if you want to follow me it's at Jason Tron on that note and on that ramble I think we can sign off so thank you so much for joining us until next time,
0: bye